0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Law is all around us, and we need to know about those who made it what it is. I have just the book for you. Though relatively short, the 2020 book, 2022 book, The Prophet of Harvard Law, James Bradley Fair, and His Legal Legacy by Andrew Porwatcher, Austin Coffey, Taylor Jip and Jake Masaitis, is jam-packed with information about late 19th and early 20th century legal history and the professionalization of American legal education. This is a moving tale of a professor whose acolytes included some of the giants of American jurisprudence, for example, the judges and justices Oliver Wendell Holmes, Louis Brandeis, Learned Hand, and the legal scholars John Henry Wigmore and Roscoe Pound. Even though those not directly taught by theorists, such as Friedrich Frankfurter, lauded him as an intellectual influence. You may be thinking, why should I take the time to read a book about a long-dead Harvard law professor? Well, because many of the issues that James Bradley Thayer, 1831 to 1902, and his students grappled with have shaped almost every encounter Americans have with the law and affect our rights from the workplace to the schoolroom to the courtroom. Thayer and Wigmore, for example, did pioneering work on the laws of evidence. Handed the same on the topic of expert testimony. Holmes and Thayer thrashed out the meaning of the word presumption as it was used in trials. And on a grander scale, Holmes, Brandeis, and Hand were trained as thinkers in constitutional law by Fair, who could all do with a primer on what living constitutionalism is, for example. The book is also valuable for its contributions to the field of his- the history of education and will benefit those researching the development of professional associations and the transformation of universities like Harvard from small liberal arts institutions into major research universities. This is social history at its best. We read about how fair attracted bright young men from across the country who applied what they learned under their under their beloved mentor once they left harvard and took up posts elsewhere as wigmore did as dean at northwestern law school and, and they also played key roles in major legal cases in the progressive era and beyond economics labor law free speech they're all here and beloved is not too strong a word for the way these titans of american law regarded fair Early career academics in any field who need a role model the dedicated teacher could do worse than study the life of James Bradley Thayer. He was a subject of admiration and gratitude decades later by influential men who credited him with providing moral support and practical help when they were first starting out and for setting a standard of learning and hard work that they applied in their judicial and academic careers. There was a networker and mentor par excellence. This book is interesting in itself, apart from its subject, in that it is, a, it is a joint work by Professor Andrew Porwanter and three of his former students. That is a project worthy of note and something Thayer would almost certainly have endorsed given how closely he worked with his students when they were at Harvard, and in many cases for years afterwards. It is no exaggeration to say that our lives today were affected by the active law-related personal correspondence between Thayer and his men. Let's hear from Professor Porwanker about what might be called the Thayer Effect and what co-authorship with students entails. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope G. Lehman, and I'm one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I'm talking today with Andrew Pohwantcher, one of the co authors of the 2022 book, The Prophet of Harvard Law James Bradley Fair and His Legal Legacy. Thank you for joining us today, Andrew.
2: Thank you, Hope. This is really a treat for me. I'm a huge fan of the New Books Network, so I'm honored to be able to come on the show as a guest.
1: Well, you you were one, one one of the favorite subjects of the New Books Network because you've been on it before to talk about your book about Alexander Hamilton and the Jewish legacy. So that's wonderful. So we're glad to have you back again. And I recommend, speaking of other podcasts, I recommend that after this uh, interview that people. Google your name and look at the other interviews that you've conducted on, on elsewhere on the net. They're always worth worth listening to. I've listened to several of them myself. So, anyway, I'd like to start out with the, the the origins of the book and the fact that you you this is as I said in the intro that you are one of the four authors of this book. You're the, basically the the, the mentor. Uh, extraordinaire, I guess, of this project. Could you talk to us about this unusual project? And how did you pitch it to to A, to the students, and B, to your publisher?
2: When I first came to the University of Oklahoma over a decade ago now, I'm dating myself, I was struck by the talent of our best undergraduates. They were as good as students I had encountered anywhere. And I had long suspected that some of these students with the right guidance could produce publishable work that could withstand the rigors of peer review. And in 2019, I was having lunch with one of them, Austin Coffee, and I said, do you think I could ever co-author a a book with students? Do you think that's a good idea? And he was like, yeah, I do think that's a good idea. I don't know if he realized he was about to be signing on for three plus years of (laughs) really exhaustive research and writing and editing. And I tapped him and also uh, Taylor Jip, who has since gone on to the University of Cambridge to study the philosophy of religion, and another student, Jake Bezatis, who's gone on to Yale Law. Austin himself is the first loose scholar in over a decade at OU. So these are really talented students. And I asked them to join me in this endeavor, not as research assistants, but as full-fledged co-authors. I told them that the subject matter of the book I had in mind was a legal biography of a lost giant of American law, James Bradley Thayer, Mm. who taught in the latter quarter of the 19th century. And the book would explore his life and his relationship with and impact upon his protégés. Now, there's a certain coincidence between the authorship and the subject matter. This is a book by a professor and his former students about a professor and his former students taking <laughs> the forward. is perhaps too on the nose. We proceeded a pace regardless. And after several years of working together, we're delighted to finally have this book come out with the University Press of Kansas, a publisher that's known for its legal history. And I was fortunate in Kansas to find a publisher that was willing to take the book on its own merits, that was willing to engage the question Does the argument follow from the evidence and not look at the book askance because of this unusual authorship, but actually see that as a benefit? So we're hugely grateful to the folks up in Lawrence for giving this book an opportunity. And we're excited to, now that it's finally out, share it with the world.
1: Well, kudos to the University of Kansas Press, because they they are indeed an an impressive operation, well good congratulations and those certainly sound like they are they're going to run you're going to run a a close uh give give give, give there some 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 real competition here <laughs> so now now that we've established that it's the the authorship of the book and the ther tradition i'd like to ask you about about Thayer himself and and for example you talk about you the, you call the the title of the book is the prophet of harvard law james bradley Thayer and his legal legacy and i think that's really impressive in the book that you connect who he was and also his impact over the over decades because frankfurter didn't was was still functioning in the court in the 1960s and Thayer himself died in the early 1900s so that's fascinating could you talk about um well let's start let's start off with with um well one of the things that struck me in the book is that there was his own his own corpus was rather slender because and you make the point that possibly this was because a he was selfless in his mentoring and did not just say to people i, I need to shut myself in a room do my own writing he would or and also there's some suggestion that he was such perfectionist that he was not willing to write more in fact many of the the in fact Brandeis that you talk about in the book several of his of his scholars urged or his students urged him in later years to publish more and he just wouldn't he was very reluctant could you talk about did he have writers block or was he just careful to to an extreme degree
2: hope I think you've hit the nail on the head on both counts on the one hand Thayer was so deeply committed to mentorship so committed to lending a second set of eyes on a colleague's work in progress, so committed to diligently preparing for every class period that he simply didn't have the time to invest in his publications that other scholars made a priority. And as you've noted, Thayer did have a perfectionist streak. Mm. There was no detail too small for him to double check, no additional case not worth exploring. And this Streak. this instinct to be exhaustive was something of a prophylactic against (laughs) Thayer actually producing the kind of large corpus of writing that many of his most prolific protégés were able to. And so if we want to think about Thayer's impact, it's not principally his scholarship, though his scholarship was important. It is rather his influence in and outside the classroom, through his interpersonal relationships, where Thayer left his most enduring mark.
1: That is very clear in the book, and it's very touching how he, that they just loved him. And it's interesting, you make the point in the book that they used almost quasi-religious language, that Frankfurter called him the Alpha Omega of his intellectual life, and others referred to themselves as his disciples. And speaking of which, I'd like to talk a little about about the religious aspect. I noticed that in his, he, he could you talk? He was a Unitarian, and Utah, and many of his, some of his leading men, mentees, like Brandeis, were Jewish. But I was interested. You comment in the book about anti-Catholicism at Harvard in his day, and were there any? I noticed that none of them, none of his notable subjects, seemed to have been Catholic. Was that? Was that a, a personal problem with Thayer? Was it just that there were none at Harvard at the time, or is it just that they didn't come up in his in his universe? Or I was just curious about that.
2: That's a great question. I have not seen any evidence to indicate that Thayer harbored any anti-Catholic biases. Thayer was someone who had a strikingly pluralistic approach to other people. He was very farsighted on issues around abolitionism and civic equality for Native Americans. As he noted, Mm. he was accepting of Jewish students at a time when many in the Wasp elite were not. Harvard did discriminate against graduates of Catholic colleges in their law school admissions. And so there is a smaller pool of Catholic Mm. students whom Thayer could have mentored, but I have no reason to believe that Thayer reflected the broader law school's animus towards Catholics.
1: Well, well, speaking of of his openness to other uh, different categories of human beings, it's really fascinating that so many of of his students were from very, very different parts of the country. That Wigmore was from the the Bay Area, I believe, and 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 Pound was from Nebraska, and Thayer himself was a. Uh, a a New Englander. And you make the point that he was not a Boston Brahmin the way his student Oliver Wendell Holmes was, but he was very comfortable with the New England, with the New Englanders and Harvard itself. Could you talk a little about his own, it's interesting too, that he, you make the point that even though it seems that he spent most of his life at Harvard, he might seem a secluded scholar, but you make the point that early in his life, he actually was a fairly impop or from a modest background, and then he made his he made as living for a time as a journalist re- researching the railroad industry, which at the nineteenth century was a highly controversial uh, part of a very powerful part of American society. Would you talk about his background a little bit? And also, I'm sorry to keep the your book is so fascinating that I keep interrupting myself and saying, oh, and could you discuss too his the, this very kindly lady Anne Lyman, who paid for his education at Harvard. That it was as fascinating. He she just saw him as a bright young man, and he was very kind to her and visited her in her elderly years. I thought that was a very touching aspect and showed what a kind and gentle man he was. I, I, I was very impressed by that.
2: I'm really glad to have an opportunity to talk about Thayer's early life, because this is a lesser known slice of Thayer's journey relative to his Harvard years. And in mm. fact, Austin and I have a spin-off article coming out in the journal called American 19th Century History. And the article is entitled uh, becoming Brahmin, a country boy's mm. journey to Harvard Yard. And it's very much focused on the first half of Thayer's life and his uh, improbable ascension into the ranks of the Boston Brahmin, of the Boston mm. elite. So mm. Thayer is born into economically precarious circumstances. His father has difficulty holding down steady work. He does not grow up on Beacon Hill. He is not a silver-spooned patrician. He grows up in rural Massachusetts, hopscotching around as his father tries to eke out a living for his family. And there is very little in Thayer's childhood that would suggest that he was bound for the rarefied heights of an endowed professorship Mm -hmm. at Harvard Law. And yet through a series of incidents, some pure luck, Others, a testament to Thayer's intellectual aptitude and fortitude, he does climb the ranks into the epicenter of this exclusive Brahmin world. Mrs. Lyman, Mrs. Ann Lyman, as you mentioned, is absolutely crucial to Thayer's journey as a teenager. Thayer based on the evidence we have, does not seem to have been enrolled in high school. Mm -hmm. He's working at a jewelry store and he's teaching himself Latin and Greek that Mm -hmm. he'll need to know to get into college. And his plan is to attend one of the local colleges in Western Massachusetts. But Mrs. Ann Lyman, who was the widow of a revered local judge, she insists that Thayer go to Harvard. And in fact, she is present in Cambridge to keep an eye on matters as Thayer is taking his entrance exams to get into Harvard. (laughs) And Thayer is so brilliant, he's able to easily pass the test. Economically, you know, Harvard was expensive, not as expensive as it is today, Mm. even in inflation-adjusted dollars, but it was becoming more expensive and therefore less accessible to people like James Bradley Thayer and Mrs. Lyman not only helps offset the cost of tuition, but she also makes sure that Thayer's room is outfitted with furniture. She sews new clothes for him to wear Mm -hmm. at college. She is absolutely central to Thayer's entry into the Harvard community. And once he's at Harvard, that sends Thayer on a trajectory that leads him to Harvard Law, that leads him to the kind of social and intellectual circles that will ultimately cement his place in the Brahmin elite and make this tenure that he has on the Harvard Law faculty, which in retrospect seems inevitable, uh, actually was a contingency very much predicated on the generosity of Mrs. Lyman. Thayer at this early formative stage takes a lesson from this relationship, Mm. which is that a older person exercising some measure of generosity Mm. can have an outsized impact on the trajectory of the life of a younger person. It's a lesson that that stays with him for the rest of his life. And he spends the remainder of his years paying Lyman's generosity forward to the next generation.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you make a point. I'd like to connect two of of the things in your book that are very very interesting to me that one was that you talk about his his entrance into the feeling com- comfortable among the Boston Brahmins and the Boston elite that the role of Ralph Waldo Emerson was very fascinating that he that he was introduced to Emerson I think by Mrs. Lyman or probably through her through her agency possibly or, or in, the, in those circles at any rate but he he became friends with and, El, and Emerson was quite a bit older and you make the point that that Lyman I'm sorry that that fair actually helped him with his investments and that kind of thing was practical help as well. And then later on, not only was he kind to Emerson, the older man, but years later, he he thrilled Brandeis, the young Brandeis, by introducing Brandeis to Emerson. I believe that, that that yeah, that that happened in the book. I'm sure. I thought that my I, it was it was really I thought yeah, I didn't realize that, that the, those generations overlapped And I read. I thought, gosh, was Brandeis young enough to have met Emerson? But he was. Could you talk a little about the relationship of of among among uh. For example, Thayer's intellectual, cultural life as well, that he was a very well-rounded renaissance, or at least he enjoyed the theater and so forth.
2: James Bradley Thayer, while not of Brahmin stock himself, marries into a Brahmin family. Mm. He marries Sophia Ripley, who is the niece of Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm. And so it appears that through his wife, he comes to know... Emerson and develops a close relationship with him. Emerson at the time is the preeminent public intellectual mm. in American life.
1: They mm. are. He was had, really the first public intellectual in American life in many ways, wouldn't you? It's hard to think of anyone who preceded him in that role, but
2: yeah, in, in many respects he, he is sui generous. at the very least he was thought of within the, cambridge intellectual milieu as sui generis Mm. emerson and thayer have a lively relationship where they talk about everything from poetry to as you note financial advice to legal advice the thayers and the emerson spend thanksgivings together in concord thayer actually takes a trip on a train through the American West with Ralph Waldo Emerson Mm -hmm. and writes a a memoir that's published as a book about the experience. Mm -hmm. And what's so striking about Emerson is that he stands apart from many of the trends we see in 19th century America. Thayer's life, which spans the last seven decades of the 19th century, is characterized by urbanization, by industrialization, by increasing interdependence. Emerson, on the other hand, is famously the author of works prizing self-reliance
0: mm.
2: or Emerson. The model is not what he calls the city dolls of Boston and New York, who specialize in just one topic, but rather the rough-hewn boy from rural New England who tries his hand at many occupations. They are in many ways has a foot in this Emersonian past. Thayer is from rural Massachusetts. He did everything from being a physician's assistant to working in a jewelry store, to being a journalist, to ultimately becoming a professor. And so he very much embodies this Emersonian ideal of the well-rounded Renaissance man. And yet, ultimately, Thayer's life is defined by the sustained cultivation of expertise in a particular domain, in the law. Hmm. And so Thayer, to the extent he's an Emersonian figure, has a foot in the 19th century, and to the extent that he is at the vanguard of professionalizing American law, Hmm. has a foot in the 20th. He is very much an intermediary figure who bridges the antebellum world of his birth with the progressive era of his death.
1: Yes, and you have some wonderful pictures in the book of what Harvard was like, and it looks bucolic compared to what is probably rather—I've never been there, but imagine it's—it's—it's it's, it's rather urban, urban, or centered or surrounded by urbanization. But, but um, uh, getting getting back to his his his, you make the point that he 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 had this early life, and then he worked in jewelry stores and so forth. But you also, in the book, you make clear that. Perhaps one of the reasons that he was has a rather slender corpus is that he didn't become a law professor until his late forties. Could you talk about about the, what his his commercial that he and also you make the point in the book that he was a rather modest and self-effacing person, so he wasn't a really riveting courtroom presence. Could you talk about his his rather lucrative career was it was he able to save money that enabled him to become a, a law professor at harvard which probably didn't pay tremendous amounts of money at that point in fact it was it was rather hard decision wasn't it for him to, to take up that position yeah he, he took a loss right you make the point in the book that he took a cut in salary to do it
2: absolutely so after thayer graduates as number one in his class at harvard law He has debts to pay off. He's had to work his way through both of his degrees. And again, Mm -hmm. he does not come from a family of means, unlike many of his friends at Harvard. And so Thayer goes into private legal practice and he works in private practice for about 20 years, Mm -hmm. paying off his debts, starting to build an estate. And he's initially offered an opportunity to join Harvard in the early 1870s, not as a scholar of law, but rather as a scholar of rhetoric. Oh, and he turns down the job because it simply would entail too great a sacrifice in salary. Mm. But the president of Harvard, Charles William Elliott, who was in a social club with Thayer and knew him personally is determined to get Thayer on the faculty. And so a couple of years later, Elliot, not one to be turned away offers Thayer a new position as an endowed chair at the law school. And this job still entailed a sacrifice relative to what Thayer was making in private practice, but it was not as big a pay cut as the rhetoric professorship would have entailed. And so Thayer at the age of 43 agrees to join the Harvard faculty and thus begins the second stage of his career as a scholar where he makes a reasonable living uh, comparable to perhaps a new assistant professor at a law school today, Hmm. but not quite the astronomical salaries that the senior faculty at Harvard Law make in our own time.
1: Hmm. Well, speaking of money and and later on, there's a fascinating story in your book about his relationship with Oliver Wendell Holmes. And there's a a case where Holmes that he, he, he wants to mentor Holmes and he tries. Holmes at this point is a promising, I think it was a Supreme Court, on the, the Massachusetts State Supreme Court at that point. And Thayer went to a huge amount of trouble to arrange a professorship for Holmes at Harvard. And then Holmes, without telling anyone at Harvard or Thayer, could you tell that story and because it's in, it's fascinating what became of the money that he and Brent and Brandeis who was a very good fundraiser, helped there raise all this money and what became of that money it's kind of ironic what happened to that sum of money. Could you tell that story of the of the um, of the fact that that Thayer got that money that was meant for Holmes It's kind of a convoluted story, but it reflects interestingly on what a gentleman there was and what a kind of hard elbowed person Oliver Wendell Holmes was.
2: That's right, Hope. And I think anyone listening to this podcast who has even tangential familiarity with academic politics (laughs) will not be surprised to learn about all the backroom machinations. (laughs) So in the early 1880s, Thayer is determined to bring Oliver Wendell Holmes onto the law faculty. Holmes is a lawyer who is engaging in legal scholarship on the side. And he has a reputation as one of the most promising young legal minds of his era. Thayer is about 60 years old at the time, maybe closer to 50, actually. And Holmes is about 40 years old. So Holmes is a bit junior to Thayer. And the president of Harvard starts raising money for an endowed professorship to bring Holmes onto the Harvard faculty. But Holmes doesn't want Harvard to raise money from his friends in the legal community. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, I'll come, but not if you're getting money from my friends. I Which, don't is, want to,
1: which is to his credit, like, uh, to Holmes's credit.
2: Which is to his credit, but it also makes it particularly difficult because the very people who are meetable <laughs> donating are the kinds of people who are friends with Oliver Wendell Holmes and <laughs> small elite legal community mm-hmm. and charles william Eliot, the president of harvard says well we just have to give up and moves on to other matters but thayer is determined to find some path to bring holmes onto the faculty and he has dinner with lewis brandeis who is a practicing lawyer and relatively young harvard law alum who had been a star student of thayer's the two mm-hmm. of them were very close And they start discussing, well, who can we raise money from? Maybe some of the younger alumni Hmm. who have recently graduated. And they both think that there's a particularly good target named Weld, who has just inherited the equivalent in today's money of $80 million from his grandfather, who had been a (laughs) shipbuilder. And so they say, okay, let's see if we can get Weld, because he could unilaterally endow this position. So Brandeis undertakes some reconnaissance. He tracks down Weld, and he says, you know, Thayer's really interested in raising money for this endowment. Would you be interested? And Weld, who actually was not a terribly good law student and actually dropped out of Harvard Law, has so much affection for Thayer (laughs) that he's highly agreeable. Hmm. And Brandeis arranges for a meeting later that afternoon between Weld and Thayer. And Weld says, well, I'd like to give the money, but I'm concerned because I actually want to return to Harvard Law and complete my degree. And I'm worried that if I make this donation and the donation is public, it will appear as if I have bribed the law school in exchange for the passing grades I would need to graduate. And Thayer says that you can count on us to deal with you with absolute impartiality should you return as a student. And we're happy to keep the donation under wraps until such time as you've completed your degree. Now, the irony is that the professorship from the beginning is called the Weld Professorship. So it <laughs> rendered guesses about who gave the money. Too <laughs> In any event, this professorship does bring Holmes onto the faculty. And then after just a semester of teaching, Thayer is reading the Boston Globe and he sees an article that says Oliver Wendell Holmes has just accepted the governor's nomination to the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. And Thayer can't believe it. It's inconceivable to Thayer that Holmes would have been offered this judgeship and without breathing a word to Thayer, without breathing a word to anyone at Harvard, would just accept the judgeship. And in fact, Thayer is so confident that this report must be mistaken, mm-hmm. that Holmes could not have possibly taken this offer without conferring with Thayer first, that he offers the Harvard Law Library a bet of $500, <laughs> $13,000 in today's money oh my gosh! that the governor has simply offered to nominate him and Holmes has not accepted. And in fact, had the librarian taken that bet, he would have emerged the richer for it. It turns out that Holmes indeed accepted the governor's offer without consulting Thayer first. This is a deep affront to Thayer. He is hugely wounded by Holmes's arrogance, by his self-centeredness, by the lack of thought that he gave Harvard Law and particularly the students at Harvard Law, some of whom had been induced to come to that institution precisely because Holmes was on faculty. It is a story that says much about Holmes's self-regard, but it's also a story that says a lot about Thayer because it underscores just how much Thayer labored to create opportunities for other people.
1: That's very that comes across really strongly, especially not especially because there are so many of them. But in the case of Wigmore, that he went to great effort to to help him land jobs and 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 and. Pers- it was interesting, too, that the relationship with Holmes is interesting in that he was there was this there's this rather moving passage where um, they in is after this incident is almost needy that he says that are we are we still friends do you do do," it's almost like he's asking do you still need me anymore and Holmes is and Holmes is um not I mean he reassures him a little bit but he doesn't he doesn't I don't think it's just kind of a a, just a sort of a touching relationship with the insecurity of there at that point and but um I'm sorry go ahead
2: yeah I'll I'll just mention briefly hope that After Holmes ascends to this chief to this, I should say, uh, associate justiceship on the Supreme Judicial Court, he later becomes chief justice at the very end of his tenure on that court before ascending to the U.S. Supreme Court in his role as a Massachusetts judge, at which point Thayer is no longer of any use. Holmes no longer needs Thayer Mm. as a professional booster behind the scenes. Holmes continues to engage in an exchange with Thayer about the law that lasts for 20 years. Hmm. Holmes considers Thayer an expert, a mentor whose advice is to be solicited and respected. So yes, there are moments where Holmes lets his self-centeredness, his vainglory get the better of him, and yet he never cuts ties With Thayer. And there are moments where Thayer expresses doubt about whether he continues to have any standing with Holmes. But if we look at their correspondence, it is plain to see that even in moments when Holmes is disagreeing with Thayer, Holmes cares about his opinion. He is eager for Thayer's affirmation. And the mentor protege relationship endures in some form. Until Thayer's passing in 1902.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail—from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's Shopify.com/system.
1: Yeah, I think uh, one one point when I read in the book that I almost cried at that point because that Thayer had died just a few months before Holmes ascended to the U.S. Supreme Court. I thought, oh, I said, oh, that's so sad that he missed that he, that, that he didn't live to see that. So that was that was interesting. That was rather touching. Um, now I'd like to turn a little bit to to Thayer's to Thayer's. Scholarly legacy or or his in, his impact. one of the reasons one of the reasons that these famous people these famous judges saw him as the expert that you just mentioned that he was. Could you talk about? well, one thing that struck me in the book was that, he made his name basically with one one book, wasn't it? Or And then and then and then he would make his and he would make an impact, big splash with articles and and public lectures. Is that unusual for a scholar of that standing to make basically have the one book and then make his impact in a scholarly form in non-book venues?
2: It depends on the discipline today. Mm, that's true. So I'm a historian not a law professor. Mm. And for law faculty, the coin of the realm is law review articles. Mm. And to be sure, there are law faculty today who publish books and many of those books are excellent. But law reviews matter hugely in legal academia. For someone who's a, a purebred history PhD, such as myself, books are really the coin of the realm. And yes, we do publish articles and peer reviewed journals, but the book is the basic unit of currency in my world. So Thayer's approach where he publishes more articles and doesn't do that much in the way of monographs or treatises is not perhaps altogether unusual by today's standards in the legal academy. Hmm.
1: Well, I'd like to ask now about about um there's what what he what the tenets of the law that he advocated for example he strongly associated the book with the the tradition of judicial restraint and you make the point that in the book it was fascinating that that term was not oh i'm sorry that was that was originalism i'm sorry that but um that could you talk about there's there's impact on the judicial restraint and the fact that he that he believed that well i'll let you talk about it in
2: august of 1893 Thayer delivers a paper at the Chicago World's Fair Mm. entitled The Origin and Scope of the American Doctrine of Constitutional Law. And he publishes this paper shortly thereafter in the Harvard Law Review. And this short article, about 28 pages, was seen by some of his contemporaries and by scholars in our own day as the single most important law review article in the history of America constitutionalism. It is in this article where Thayer lays out his full-throated theory of judicial deference to Congress or to state legislatures writ large. His theory of judicial deference actually applies to both the federal legislature and state legislatures. And Thayer argues that when a judge is exercising judicial review, when a judge is considering whether to void a statute because it's unconstitutional, the question for the judge should not be whether the judge thinks the law is unconstitutional, but rather whether anyone Mm. plausibly could find it to fit within the provisions of the Constitution. If there be any rational claim to constitutionality, the legislative act must withstand judicial scrutiny. According to Thayer, the same strength of presumption, a presumption of innocence that a defendant enjoys in a criminal trial should also apply to a legislative act. In other words, only if an act is unconstitutional beyond a reasonable doubt can a judge rightly strike it down? For Thayer, his conviction about the wide latitude that the bench had to afford legislatures rested on his most fervent conviction about American democracy. For him, the essence of democracy is majority rule. When legislatures make mistakes, and to be sure they do, the onus must fall on the voters and their representatives to rectify those errors if we become overly reliant on an unelected judiciary to intervene and save democracy from itself then we've already lost democracy
1: Hmm. and i was just noticing that I just did check my notes and say that judicial restraint, you say in the book and a footnote did was not used until the late 20th century. I mean is, or I'm sorry the, the 20th century as a term it was interesting. Um, uh, could you well yeah, I, I'd like to ask about how uh, one of the fascinating facts is that uh, in terms of his influence, you were talking about his, his book that it was the most I mean the article that was the most important article in in did you say in, in American constitutional history? Yes. Well, yeah, I was interested that in your book that you make the point that that there were very different the the, the figures that you profile had very different um, records with citing Fair as a source in their own work, and you make the point that Brand, Brandeis hardly ever did, and you make the point that conversely Frankfurter did almost to the point of plagiarism, which is fascinating the difference between them. And could you talk about that and the fact that is there any is there any is that because of, for, for what reason was that the Brandeis was just wanted to do his own work and Frankfurter was like, like to give, 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 give a connection to, to justify his own positions or what, 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 what was the reason for that? Is there any way to know or.
2: That's a great question. And the short answer is I'm not sure what I've done is recognize a pattern where some theorites <laughs> were quick to acknowledge their debt to him and private correspondence like lewis brandeis Mm. but they tended not to cite him others like john henry wigmore Mm. and roscoe pound the two law school deans that you mentioned at the top of the show they cited thayer profusely Mm. and felix frankfurter is a great example of someone who's a judge, not a legal academic. Actually, he was a legal academic and then Mm. became a judge. And throughout his entire career, whether as a scholar at Harvard Law or as a Supreme Court Justice, he was constantly citing Thayer, as you note, to the point of borderline plagiarism. (laughs) So each of these figures was distinct. I suspect that for some of them, they wanted to stake out their own ground. They wanted to lay claim to their own particular vision of American law. And others were really enamored of the idea of publicly positioning themselves in a Thayerian tradition. Mm -hmm. And why some people are more prone to publicly acknowledge intellectual debts than others, I suspect is idiosyncratic. And I'd be hugely interested what a Brandeis biographer, the likes of Melvin Urofsky, Mm -hmm. might say about... Why Brandeis didn't do more to flag for people in his judicial footnotes that Thayer is really the genesis of his own belief in judicial restraint.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you made the point in the book that that some of them would thank him in their personal correspondence and others would would cite him. but Wigmore was the only one that did both. Which was kind of interesting that there was a that he seemed to need a father figure. They all, many of them, seemed to see in him a father figure. And one of the points you make about him that I think was was fascinating is that he was a personally charming person. But one of the people, one of his peers, referred to him as beautiful. That he was a very handsome man, and that that, that seemed to have. Could you talk about how he came across as a, as a teacher in the classroom? And one of one of the things that was interesting too was that hand. Found him rather frustrating that that Hand wanted wanted the law to be something a, a foundational and, and and a source of analysis and and he found that that Thayer would basically say well it's a very uh, fluid thing it's a very fickle thing it's it, the law can play play fast and loose and can you talk about Hand's reaction to that that he found it a little bit puzzling
2: absolutely
1: or bewildering I guess
2: students often come into the classroom wanting hard and fast answers. And Thayer wouldn't give it to them because the law failed to furnish those kinds of facile answers. In Thayer's classroom, as in his scholarship, he held forth that legal principles are not universal. They can't be applied in syllogistic fashion. They are full of caveats. They are at best flexible guidelines. He taught that the law is beset with indeterminacy. It is riddled with idiosyncrasy and that it must be dealt with at all times with a measure of nuance and circumspection. And Hand and other students at first found this frustrating, but then after they graduated from Harvard Law and they're actually in legal practice, they realized that Thayer's insights were of more practical value to them than any of their other professors because Thayer was describing for them not an idealized vision of law that they may have wanted, but rather law as it existed in action. Hmm.
1: Could you discuss um, the, the, the the concepts of formalism and legal realism because those were two ma- major debates of the day and, and for decades thereafter?
2: Legal realism is perhaps best understood as a reaction to its rival philosophy, legal formalism. Mm. In the legal formalist model, a judicial opinion is effectively a syllogism. It is like a mathematical proof. Judges discover divinely ordained and universal legal principles that they apply to a given fact pattern with dispassion, and with objectivity to achieve rectitude of decision. For legal realists like Thayer, this was far too facile an approach. He emphasized the provisional nature of legal guidelines. He described law not as divinely ordained, but as man-made, which was a core tenet of legal realism. Realists like Thayer emphasize the consequences of judicial opinions rather than stress their internal logic. And as was the case with so many legal realists, Thayer was a proponent of living constitutionalism, the view that constitutions, both state and federal, must be interpreted in creative and adaptive ways to accommodate the exigencies of modern life.
1: Was Holmes was Holmes an example of Thayer in that that he saw the law as a little, as much more that it it was not static that it needed to adapt to the twentieth century?
2: Absolutely, Holmes and Thayer together, I would argue, and I think most legal scholars would concede, are the two most important legal realists of the late nineteenth century
1: who would have been who would have been uh examples of those who opposed that view
2: that's such a good question hope because legal formalism is more of a straw man than an actual governing legal philosophy that reigned in that latter quarter of the 19th century realists like to invoke formalism <laughs> as a foil against which to articulate their own views of the law they often attributed formalistic attitudes to people whose ideas they wanted to discredit. But it is very difficult to find, outside of maybe a small handful of contemporary academics, people who are actually practicing lawyers or on the bench articulating a full-throated formalist vision of American law. Now, to be sure, there are elements of formalism that we can find espoused in Thayer's day. There were people who continued to see law as divinely ordained, for instance. But the core realist insights that we see from the likes of Thayer and Holmes juxtaposed as they are to legal formalism were more widespread than perhaps the legal realists like to concede.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, you make the point in the book that Thayer is often credited by his admirers with being more innovative than perhaps he actually was. And is that, is that true that, that he, that he was a fine and good person, but he, was he, was he an innovative thinker? Was he just a pioneering brain or was he just, did he just influence other people to think deeply, but not necessarily was a brilliant mind himself? How would, how would, how would he stack up, I guess, on a, a scale of one to 10 of, of, of influential thinkers?
2: Well, you're asking a Thayer biographer. <laughs> yeah. so, actually, I think 10 out of 10, Thayer was an innovator, but he was not an iconoclast. He did not stand wholly outside the normal discourse of his legal world. There were examples of iconoclasts that I mentioned in the book, people who argued that the entire concept of judicial review is bunk, that Marbury v. Madison was wrongly decided. And in fact, no judge can ever strike down a statute as unconstitutional. Thayer was not an extremist In that regard, his view that legislation should be owed a presumption of constitutionality was innovative. He was a pioneer Hmm. and he was influential. There was originality in his thoughts, but we should be careful to uh, not take at face value the claims from some of his admirers that he was a heretic or he was an apostate. I mean, he was a professor at Harvard Law. He had the kind of establishment position that would have been unavailable to a true heretic. And so my aim in the book is to capture the depth, the texture, the originality of Thayer's thought, particularly in the realm of judicial deference to Congress, while also acknowledging that his ideas, while ahead of his time, still fit broadly within mainstream legal discourse for his era.
1: Yes, you make the fascinating point about that he was not a heretic and Roscoe Pound seems to have played a little fast and loose with that in his writings that he seemed to to paint Thayer as as far more or at least he built on the legacy of Thayer and, and made him seem much more progressive than Thayer seems to have been. Where would Thayer stand now? Because he seems to be all over the map because he, he as you point out in the book he published a, a, a biography of John Marshall that was rather critical of, of Marshall's very broad views on judicial review in fact you say that in this book that he he inserted into what is purportedly a laudatory biography a great a huge essay of his own that is not it's not necessarily connected that much to Marshall's making his own views and you also make the point that it seemed to be kind of a slapdash product you joke that that it's in very large type, that it was almost like he felt that I have to produce this, and I've been asked to do it, but my heart really isn't. Could you talk about his views of Marshall?
2: Absolutely. So towards the end of his life, just a year before Thayer's death, he produces a short, very short biography of John Marshall. And John Marshall, at first glance, is an odd choice, because Thayer's principal concern is the abuse of judicial review. Mm. And John Marshall is most famous for fortifying judicial review as a cardinal element of the American legal system. And yet, I think perhaps Thayer chooses Marshall precisely so he has an opportunity to criticize Marbury v. Madison. Thayer doesn't go so far as to say that Marbury is wrongly decided, but he does critique The Marbury decision, which establishes judicial review, because he says Marshall did not do nearly enough to warn in that opinion against the excesses and abuses of judicial review. He faults John Marshall for not expressly delimiting the bounds of judicial review, and he wishes that Marshall had done what now Thayer is doing which is articulating a standard of review that gives considerable deference to legislatures. And in fact, in this book, as short as it is, Thayer often strays from his biographical narrative of Marshall's life to offer lengthy passages of his own thinking about judicial deference. It is an opportunity This biography is a platform for Thayer to continue to push forward the ideas that we saw nearly a decade earlier in his famous Origin and Scope article. The fact that Thayer employs this biography to advance his own jurisprudence that stands apart from Marshall's is a testament to Thayer's inclination to see the historical study of the law not in purely antiquarian terms, but rather in utilitarian ones, he was always keen to study the past with an eye toward present day problems, and in a bid to offer solutions for the future.
1: And it seems that oh, before I bear over this question, I just want to remind our listeners that we are talking today with Andrew Paul, Pro, pro watcher <laughs> of the co author one of the co authors of the book, The Prophet of Harvard Law, James Bradley Fair and his legal legacy. And you were just discussing Andrew a moment ago. The Thayer's emphasis on the on bringing history into the study of law, and was it Roscoe Pound notable among his among his proteges that that did that the most, or did they all do it to some extent?
2: All of his proteges were engaged with his historical scholarship. Thayer, while a scholar of evidence law, is perhaps more a scholar of the history of evidence law mm-hmm. than evidence law as as practiced in his own day though a scholar of constitutional law is perhaps more a scholar of the history of constitutional law than con law as it was practiced in his own day. He is a historian always. And so for any of his protégés to engage with his body of work is to necessarily engage with his historical scholarship. So I would certainly put Roscoe Pound, who went on to become dean of Harvard Law in the 19 teens. In that bucket, but you could just as easily say the other figures who I mentioned in this book: Holmes, Brandeis, Wigmore, Frankfurter, all of them are attuned to Thayer's emphasis on the past as a means to master the present.
1: Well, speaking of the present, could you discuss the concept of the living constitution and how that and how that's regarded today? And did Thayer ever use that term?
2: So the term living constitution post-dates Thayer, and I use the term in the book because although the nomenclature comes after Thayer's lifetime, the concept that it denotes was very much alive in his philosophy. As mentioned, Thayer believed that the Constitution must adapt to novel circumstances, and Thayer is actually not entirely consistent in making the case for why we should adopt living constitutionalism at one point in his career he says in writing that the founders thought that by not, not discussing a particular power they were de facto prohibiting the exercise of that power mm. but the founders were wrong and actually we should find in constitutional license, we should find rather in constitutional silences not a prohibition on power but a grant of power. And so Thayer is advocating living constitutionalism and in so doing rejecting original intent. Later in Thayer's career, he says, actually the original intent of the framers was to have a living constitution. (laughs) And the framers have silences in the constitution specifically so later generations could fill in those gaps. So even though Thayer is not consistent with himself on the rationale, In either case, throughout his career, he is committed to the idea that in a rapidly changing world, it is incumbent on the judiciary to see the Constitution in dynamic terms. And his belief in living constitutionalism works hand in glove with his premium on judicial deference. He argues that it is the role of legislators to see constitutions as dynamic, to pass laws consistent with an evolving conception of constitutionalism. And it is the role of judges to stand back and give a wide berth to legislatures in their implementation of a living constitutionalist view.
1: (laughs) I want to point out that you, you, you use several terms. That one of the things that I loved about your footnotes, every I loved every part of this book, actually. But in the footnotes, the term I noticed I've written it down that the term originalism was not even coined until 1980. And for those who like me like these fun facts from your book, that the term living constitution appeared first in 1927, and judicial av- activism in 1947. But uh, so that's uh, this kind. Of, kind of fun to realize that that he was he was using. He was using concepts that were not were not actually recognized as such until decades after his death. Um, uh, you talk about his his field of expertise. You mentioned that that his his he wrote that he was an expert on the Constitution, but he also was an expert on all kinds of things. That it was interesting that in the book you make the point that he he believed that in being a broad broad minded as well, but he was also even though he talked about specializing in, in fields that, I mean, he did specialize in fields, even though he wanted to be broad, he was an expert on the constitution, on evidence, on all kinds of different things. Could you talk about his areas of expertise?
2: Absolutely. So in one sense, as we've mentioned, he was, he was an Emersonian figure. Thayer was a man of broad and liberal culture to use a perhaps antiquated term. He had a passion for antiquity. He was interested in the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. He read widely. And in his own professional life, he cultivated a couple different areas of expertise, evidence law, constitutional law, history. And these elements all fit together. He's interested, as I mentioned, in history because he wants to used history as a tool to remedy the challenges then bedeviling the fields of evidence and constitutional law. His interest in those latter two fields also fit together. So Thayer in the realm of evidence is very interested in a concept known as presumptions. So a presumption allocates a particular burden on a party alleging a fact. So for instance, in Thayer's day, if there was somebody in question who had been missing for seven years, there is a presumption in court that that person was deceased. Mm. And a presumption operates as a fact that's taken on board by the court in the absence of evidence to the contrary. Now, if someone could marshal evidence that the person actually was alive, then the presumption dissolves. But in the absence of evidence, That person was dead for the purposes of the trial. And Thayer takes this concept of presumptions and applies it to constitutional law. And so when he's talking about a presumption of constitutionality that the judiciary owes to the legislature, he is in effect grafting a concept from evidence law onto his other specialty, constitutional law
1: that's very interesting because he had very very intricate correspondences which you quote very effectively in the book with Wigmore on evidence and with Holmes on presumption and and you do a beautiful job in the book of showing how what a busy correspondent he must have been and and how intricate and and his influence was spread through personal letters and I wondered about how did you divide as as scholars the four of you um, how did you, did you say you 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 do box one and I'll do box two because you went to the Harvard Law Archives, right? And, and we're to, to look through all his correspondence. How did that work? How did you divide the, the labor?
2: So I journeyed to the Harvard Law Archives on my own, and I scanned a whole wealth of material that I was then able to share in PDF form with my former students, with my co-authors. And so I had Austin take, as his principal area of concern, Thayer's life. I had Jake focus on Thayer's relationship with Oliver Wendell Holmes. Mm -hmm. And I had Taylor focus on Felix Frankfurter. For my part, I focused on John Henry Wigmore, who I had previously written a book about, Mm -hmm. as well as Louis Brandeis. Roscoe Pound and Learned Hand. Hmm. And then I took all of these materials and tried to impose some sort of harmony of theme and harmony of voice to give the book uh, a sense of cogency. And I'll leave readers to decide how well it reads, as um, you know, whether it it evokes a single authorial voice or not. But we, we tried as best we could to tell a coherent story, so that it doesn't feel like you're reading essays from four different authors that were sort of tenuously stitched together.
1: No, I wouldn't have been able to detect that at all. It's it just comes across as very fluid, and it just makes it clear the the the, the various aspects of all of these men and their different personalities, and how and and as a and you really evoke very well the difference between Wigmore, who seemed a little insecure and Holmes, who was arrogance personified, and Brandeis, who was very self-contained, or he was basically just in motion and he could do what what he was asked to do. He's very effective, but he didn't seem to need anybody in particular. Uh, One of the things that I think was what I liked about your book was sometimes it's very funny, and I just want to read a note, a a quote from it about that you talk about that um, Thayer believed that judges, that the legislature should take responsibility and that they shouldn't just... Be inert and that, that judges should not control American society. Right, that that in, in view in Theres view, Republican government cannot function on the premise that lawmakers are imbeciles and need a perennial correction by appointed judges. And I just laughed out loud at that. I thought that was very funny. Um could you talk about um the fact that Thayer was very open to criticism from the students that as they progressed and became self-assured young men, that they in fact there's this one point again with I keep reverting to Holmes, but at one point he's just he says something like this is your writing is just so gaseous or something like that that's really very acerbic, but but there being the gentleman that he was overlooked that and and didn't take it take take it to heart. But uh, um, could you talk about the, some of the personal interactions? I was struck by the fact that even though Brandeis was very grateful to Thayer and that was 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 personally. gentle person but when Thayer died that his wife wrote the condolence note and and Brandeis did not is there any particular was Brandeis just too busy or did he felt feel feel that it would be too effusive and that it would be undignified to say how much it meant to him or just I guess you can't we can't know that but I thought that was a rather interesting fact
2: yeah we we can't know and in the book I suggest that perhaps the condolence letter on Thayer's passing to his widow comes from Brandeis's wife because Brandeis is simply too preoccupied or perhaps Brandeis was so overcome with grief that he could not bring himself to pen the letter. And Hope, I suspect that the latter is the more likely scenario. These protégés of Thayer's saw him not just as a mentor, but as you've noted, as an almost religious-like figure. And his passing was a source of tremendous grief. And I would find it hard to imagine that Brandeis was so lackadaisical about Thayer's passing that that explains why it was left to his wife Alice to write the letter of condolence to mrs. Thayer
1: hmm. well, one of the one of the facts that is interesting in the book, it really reads almost like a novel in these almost uncanny, connections that happen for example that wigmore with i guess one of the another thing about the book is that it's very current i mean it's very relevant to this time there's a, quite a bit about later on the free speech cases and espionage cases which has been much in the news recently with with trump and so forth about documents but uh, that wigmore was in the army in 1917 he apparently was one of the authors of the espionage act while you talked that you mentioned that in around 1918 a year later that hand hand ran into homes on a train and made the point that you need you need to be a little bit more free speech oriented in your in your reaction to could you talk about the connections between all of these men and, and did they did they know each other did did Wig, did wigmore meet and how many of them knew each other in person for example
2: they all knew each other in person it, mm. it's so striking how dense these networks of their proteges were so wigmore for instance Actually hires Pound away from the University of Nebraska mm-hmm. and brings him onto the Northwestern Law faculty. When Pound later is at Harvard Law, his reputation is instrumental in bringing another theorite, Felix Frankfurter, <laughs> onto the Harvard Law faculty. Holmes and Brandeis are very course, close yeah.
0: mm-hmm. on the
2: Supreme Court. Wigmore counts Holmes after Thayer is probably his most important mentor. Wigmore also has a relationship with Louis Brandeis. So all of these figures know each other. They are bound together by a shared commitment to legal realism, and even more than that, by a shared intellectual heritage that originates from a single source, James Bradley Thayer.
1: And you make the point that even people outside his circle, there's a fascinating story that when when William Howard Taft was a young man, I mean, a, a, in his mid, in his early life, before he was president and before he was later Supreme Court Chief Justice, that he he was setting up the University of Cincinnati Law School, and he wrote to Thayer to ask him about how do I set up a good curriculum? And you make the point that that Thayer was very helpful, and that that it's almost it's almost like a fangirl letter from Taft to Thayer that he's very very excited to say, oh, you, you heard a talk by him, about the American Law uh of the bar association 1895 and he's just almost fawning to there could you help us and so forth and uh but um um i'd like to now ask about um about there they make the point that there was such a powerful personal influence on people are there is there any are there any professors in your own life or professors that you don't even know that that I, I, for example, I remember when C Van Woodward the historian died that there were many many tributes to him about about from students that were the, the warmth that was expressed and the gratitude you just don't see that for one thing I don't think there are many obituaries these days make it into the news of historians that we've kind of changed from from that world could you for example, I would say in terms of the impact and the love that's expressed openly for a, for a professor these days would be Robert P. George a professor of jurisprudence at Princeton that he's that and also he's still he's still only in his 60s. But I would guess that years from now that many of his students will become on the Supreme Court. Many of them already are are in esteemed and important positions. But do you think that that he's a, that he's a comparable, a comparable figure there or who else might be?
2: I'm really glad you mentioned Professor George. I had an opportunity to do a research fellowship at Princeton. And the center that Professor George runs is on Prospect Avenue in Princeton, which is the very street I grew up on. (laughs) And at the time of the fellowship, my parents still lived in the house where my childhood bedroom was. (laughs) And so uh, Dr. George would refer to me as the local boy who made good. (laughs) So I was the townie who found his way into the university community, if, if only for five short months. But It was a pleasure to get to see him uh, up close, the affection that his students have for him. And one of the things that's so striking about Robbie George is that for years he team taught with Cornel West. Now, Robbie George is a social conservative and Cornel West is about as left wing as they come. Mm -hmm. And yet the two of them were brought together by a shared commitment to the search for truth by a belief that it is from a diversity of perspectives that we may be best equipped to discriminate between truth and falsehood. And it is a delight for an undergraduate student to be able to be taught by two professors who are modeling for the class what civil disagreement looks like. And I can only hope that other faculty and other universities take That kind of pedagogical experiment as a model to emulate on their own campuses, because if the university cannot be a haven for people of good faith to disagree respectfully bound together by a shared search for truth, then there may be no haven for it left in our society.
1: Mm, That's very touching. Well, Andrew, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I'd like now to ask you, this is the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and you've been on the New Books Network before, so I know you're familiar with this, and that is, the question is, what are you working on now?
2: Thank you for that question. I've <laughs> got a couple projects in the work that I am excited about. One is called, at least tentatively, Theodore Roosevelt and the Jews, mm. and I'm doing this book with Princeton University Press, and it is The story of Roosevelt's ascension to the presidency in the early 20th century at a pivotal moment in Jewish history, Mm. at the very time that Roosevelt is seizing the reins of power in Washington, D.C., Jews are facing untold violence in the form of the pogroms Mm. in places like Russia and Romania and modern-day Ukraine. Mm. And so Jewish issues become central to Roosevelt's presidency and particularly his foreign policy to a degree he could not have previously imagined. And yet Roosevelt is uniquely positioned to take this challenge because he grows up in New York City at a time when New York is rapidly becoming 28 percent Jewish. He has a degree of exposure to the American Jewish community, many many of whom are refugees from places like Russia. Mm. And so this confluence of a president with a deep familiarity and comfort with the Jewish community coinciding with this moment of crisis for global Jewry forms a core of his presidency that's been overlooked by scholars. No one's yet done a book on this topic and so i'm excited to have an opportunity to produce the first and my other project that's really in its early days is tentatively titled the great jewish lunacy trial Hmm. And so this book like my roosevelt book like some of my earlier work on alexander hamilton is using jewish history as a window onto america's constitutional and political legacy writ large and in the Great Jewish Lunacy Trial, I tell the story of Warder Cresson, the first American diplomat to Jerusalem. While in the Holy City, Cresson renounces the Christianity of his birth. He converts to Judaism and then returns to the United States only to face charges in a court of law of lunacy. Hmm and the principal evidence that he is a lunatic and should be confined to and i'm using the language of the day a lunatic asylum is that that he has converted to the jewish faith and so his trial becomes a momentous test case for religious freedom in america so well, this is well, another well, what what year, what
1: year was that
2: so this the trial takes place in
1: 1851. Oh, that's interesting because that's the time of of in Britain where, of just thinking of comparable cases where they're just being being admitted. To, Jews were just getting into Parliament at that point, I believe. And
2: that that's right. And Warder Crescent actually spends some time in Britain uh, during this time period. So, and that's this, also
1: the, the the is that also the period when the little Jewish boy Eduardo was, was taken from his family. And um, forcibly converted to Catholicism. Is that roughly that where did, same? Here? Where
2: did that happen? I hope
1: that was in Rome, and it's it was a famous case about the little a little Jewish boy. I, I, I'm I'm sure that it was it was a case of a, a Jewish boy who was secretly baptized by his his the the family maid servant and that the that, that little boy was seized from the Jewish family and he never returned to, but you can, we, you and listeners, we can all Google it when we're finished today. But it was, Absolutely. I was just thinking that was about, there was supposed to be a Spiel, Steven Spielberg film coming out about it, but it's, and Robert George has written an art. I think he's commented on that case, but anyway, I'm sorry, I interrupted you.
2: Oh, I was just gonna say that Italian history is a little bit outside my bailiwick, but this sounds fascinating.
1: It was a major I, I certainly case. Certainly, certainly will yeah. be
2: looking into it
1: well with that i was, oh i'm sorry was there then so they the, the jewish lunacy trial i have never heard of that case so that will be really fascinating and and that's an interesting period because 1851 i wonder how old was roosevelt interesting yeah would be, he probably would have read about that in his day i was just trying to connect the dots between roosevelt and but i know that that'll be fascinating because i know that roosevelt was close friends with kipling and or at least were acquainted with them and kipling was very was i think quite anti-semitic so Anyway, it will be fascinating. Those are we'll look forward to those. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to both of them. And with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking today, Andrew Porwancher, one of the co-authors of the book, The Prophet of Harvard Law, James Bradley Fair and his legal legacy. And thank you, listeners. Thank you, everyone. Thank you,
2: Andrew. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hope. Thank you.